Hi, it's Dune here, your host and hype girl. And before we dive into today's episode, I want you to take a hot second to reflect. What's that passion, unique experience, or knowledge you have itching to be shared with the world? For me, it's always been about guiding you and cheerleading incredible women to start your businesses. So what's your thing? You see, everyone's got something they excel at, something they just can't stop talking about. And it turns out that one of the best ways to monetize those passions is through sharing that thing with the world as a digital course product. My life's work has been to chat with more than 600, 7, 8, and 9-figure e-commerce founders. And it's through those conversations that have led me to creating a foolproof playbook and my go-to guide for early-stage founders in the form of my first-ever digital program, e-commerce fundamentals. But it wouldn't have been possible without Thinkific. The beauty of this platform lies in its simplicity. Cute templates and a super easy to use editor. No coding headaches, no tech-induced stress, just pure focus on what matters most, the content. So if you've ever been curious about building a course to teach your passion, this is the way to do it. The genuine support from the Thinkific team turns it from this lonely, confusing headache into the most fulfilling and easy project. Go to the link in my show notes to get a free trial on me. This is Lauren Groper for Female Startup Club. Hey everyone, it's June here, your host and hype girl. In this episode, we're learning from Lauren Groper, the founder of Repurpose. Today, we're talking through how you actually get to the point of having 15,000 stockists, what she paid for her one word URL, getting to eight figures in revenue, and what it feels like 11 years into building this thing. Repurpose is creating green alternatives to disposable plastic since 2010. Designed by a mum, Repurpose's plant-based, compostable and reusable tableware is good for people and our planet. As always, share this on social media and shout about it to women who would benefit from hearing these stories. We love it when you do that. Let's get stuck into this episode. This is Lauren for Female Startup Club. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. 
For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Lauren, hi. Welcome to the Female Startup Club podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. This is awesome. I'm so excited to be here talking to you as such a seasoned entrepreneur who's obviously been through a whole wild journey. But for those who don't know, could you introduce yourself and tell us what your business actually is? Sure. Hi, everybody. I'm Lauren Groper. I'm the founder and CEO of Repurpose, and we make plant-based compostable alternatives to plastic tableware. So we are trying to get rid of plastic with sustainable alternatives. Changing the world, basically. Trying to. Every little bit. I love that. Thank you. you have a wild URL, by the way, and I love to point out this URL business when someone has a really good one. How did you get this URL? Did you start with this? And for everyone listening, it's repurpose.com, which is just phenomenal. Yes, this is a real story. So we were repurposecompostables.com for a long time because repurpose was being squatted on. And we just felt like, okay, repurpose compostables is great, but it's so long and hard to spell and... You know, we still have that, but we always want to repurpose. And we felt like we are building a brand. We need something really, really strong. But how do you get a verb? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like Recycle.com or something. So someone was squatting on it. We had to do this whole stealth kind of like go through a rep and act like we weren't interested, even though we were. And the price, every time we'd be like, okay, he'd name a price. And then we would be like, okay, great. You have a deal. That sounds good. And it was like, I think it started at like, 15,000 or something like that. And we felt like for that, that was was reasonable. But then every time we said, yes, he'd be like, "Mm, I changed my mind. It's, it's 30. (laughs) It just kept going up. I know until finally we did pay probably way too much, but what did you pay for it? 75. I don't know. I feel like to me, that sounds kind of like Obviously not cheap. That's the wrong word. But I just assumed that these kind of one word URLs were like hundreds of thousands of dollars. Well, I think I think we did get it at a decent value, to be honest. And many of our uh, board members were like, you don't necessarily need that. Is that the best use of funds? Like, could you do something like repurpose home or buy a repurpose mm. or whatever it was? We had a bunch of different ones. But I was, you know, our team, my co-founders, we were like, no, we want repurpose.com. <laughs> Especially because we're, you know, we're building the brand and we have to have the name. So... And I also feel like when the day comes that you want to sell the brand, that's like an asset in itself to have just that. 
100%. How does it work for you with like SEO? Are there struggles there having it just as repurpose.com? So far, no. And a lot of our SEO is actually built on the old URL, but then that URL redirects to repurpose.com. But no, it's sort of worked in our favor a little bit, actually. Gosh, that's awesome. What a cool, cool little story to get us started. (laughs) Love that for you. Uh, and for the brand, can we go back to where this begins? We're talking circa 2010 when the brand launches. So I imagine the story starts a few years before that or potentially quite a few years before that. So let's, let's rewind. Take us back. Yeah. So essentially my, I'd always been in the sustainability space. I started out in sustainable architecture. I was working in the green building world in New York and had been working on mostly hotels and office buildings making them more sustainable. So going from conventional building to sustainable building, which was kind of happening in the, in the early aughts. Um, you know, that was when it really was starting to kind of take shape in New York. And I had specifically studied that. So I was in this great position where there weren't that many people really focused on it. So I got to work on a lot of great big projects. But because of that, I met some really interesting people, some of whom had been working in the film industry in LA. And so I, they sort of thought, what if you could do what you were doing with building and bring it to set design and set building? And so make Hollywood sets more green, more sustainable. And that was like, oh, well, that sounds really cool. You know, maybe I'll do that for a little while, or I can do that alongside kind of the work I'm doing with the building. And so came to New York, or sorry, came to LA to do set design that was more sustainable. And I don't know if you've ever been on a set, but the nature of a set is that it's very temporary. Everything's fast. It's kind of like hurry up and wait. There's not a lot of time for, you know, for example, eating your lunch on a set of dishes, washing them, et cetera. It's like grab it, go. It's a grab and go kind of thing. It's like the buffet vibe. <laughs> right. And there's just like, and people drinking plastic bottles. That doesn't happen anymore. But back then it was like plastic bottles everywhere. People would take two steps and then put it down and then grab another one and then, plastic forks and everything was like just a sea of plastic behind the scenes. And actually several of the shows, not only the sets that we were working on, but I was doing shit like content about living a green life. And then behind the scenes we were doing. (laughs) So it felt to me like, you're like, I'm living a double life. (laughs) And, and to me just felt like this is a problem that's only going to get worse. And it's, this is, I didn't, I didn't know anything about ocean plastic or anything like that of the problem of, plastic in the ocean or how bad it was. It just felt to me like this is a waste issue. This is a problem of waste. And why are we using petroleum that we, that's a finite resource that we dig out of the ground to make a product like a fork that we use for five minutes and then throw it away. And then it lasts forever. Like that just makes no sense. And so it felt to me like this was an area that was ripe for disruption, much like what was happening in the building industry. It felt like we can take those same lessons and apply kind of a more sustainable design approach to these everyday kind of plastic tableware products. Why can't we just use a different kind of product to make them? And so in my research, I came across several different technology companies that were kind of using advanced materials, using basically plant-based chemistry to create plastic. It was like, it mimicked plastic, but the the foods, the feedstock was was plant based versus versus a polymer, much like you know Beyond Meat, Impossible Foods. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But if those things existed, like why was there still so much plastic being made? 
price primarily. So plastic is very cheap. Foam is very, very cheap. And when, you know, people really were more concerned, obviously, over the bottom line than they were at the time about sustainability, that's rapidly changing and has changed in many areas. But back then it was like, you know, if you can, if you can get it for the same price, great. I'm all for it, but it never was the same price. So it was really hard to create sort of like this mass adoption, but technology has improved hugely over the last decade. The prices come down a ton. And so now we're talking about a much more level playing field, much like in the renewable energy space, you're seeing a much more level playing field and you can, you can purchase more cheap renewable energy. So Long story short, <laughs> the idea was let's use an alternative to petroleum-based plastics because we still need something that's disposable. Also back then, it was not like the thought process, there was not that kind of same adoption to a new system. Like let's use reusables and create a whole reusable system that people weren't open to that. That was just like way too far. So mm-hmm. I think coming up with this sort of, okay, you still need your disposable goods but what can we do that's more sustainable, that's made from plants that uses less water, that uses less energy to make, that can also be at the end of its life composted, meaning it can break down into nothing, into soil, and then be used to grow plants again. So the concept of zero waste is what we're going for. Or there's another buzzword called circular economy. It's, it's a much more circular process because you're using plants to create the product, and then when you dispose of the product, it basically breaks down into soil that can be used to grow plants again. So that's that's also kind of that's kind of like the thesis of sustainable design is thinking about how a product is made, thinking about how it's used, and then thinking about how it's disposed of. And when you design the product, you design with circularity in mind versus kind of take from the ground, make your product, and then it turns into waste. You kind of want to eliminate the concept of waste. So it was this sort of more kind of like intellectual pursuit that I'd studied and I felt like this was an amazing application for it because we could make products out of an alternative, you know, feedstock, i.e. plants that had a much lighter footprint and could be disposed of in a way that left no waste behind. And so that was kind of the initial piece. And then we always wanted to be a brand. So the technology obviously had existed for several years. Again, it was in its infancy. So there were aspects of of the technology that didn't work super well. Um, The products sometimes were inconsistent. Um, They didn't have the same durability as the conventional products. It was was more expensive. There were a lot of issues to kind of like get that mainstream adoption, but we did feel like this is going to be something big. This is going to be a category that people will eventually switch to. And we want to be the the Kleenex, like the brand name of it. So (laughs) that was because there were several companies at the time, those much bigger now, they were small at the time that were doing kind of more, you know, act, they were on campuses, college campuses. They were servicing some hotels and very progressive cafes. But again, it was still quite fringe. And so we mm. felt like, okay, there are some minor players, but there's no one has brand recognition and we can really take, we can really own that. And and mm-hmm. this is going to be the future, so we should own that. So that was that was the whole that was the thought process. And then I think the next step is really to figure out what is, what is the go-to-market strategy? Are you going, where are you going to sell this, this technology and these products? At the time we had some amazing innovation and kind of, we had this coffee cup that was using this plant-based insulation. So you didn't need a sleeve or anything like that. And we thought this could be, 
this that was like our hero product at the time when we launched. And we got a lot of press on it. And that was how we kind of got ourselves into some of these big retailers because it was super innovative. You know, it replaced all the conventional products. You didn't need a sleeve. It was insulated and had our brand name all over it. Our old brand. We've since actually rebranded. We rebranded a couple of years ago. But what was the first name? It was still repurposed, but it was like very... Oh, right. With the compostables. You know, Eco 1.0. It was like a green leaf on a white background, kind of, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But we sort of did that purposefully too, because we wanted people to just immediately recognize, oh, that's Eco, you know, it's got Mm -hmm. a green leaf. So that was was kind of an easy way to, to make people have that immediate recognition. And that's what got us onto store shelves. So our go-to-market strategy was really, we're going to go into, you know, the goal is always the Targets and the Walmarts, but let's start with whatever we can get our hands on and get on retail shelves to build the brand and be a replacement for what people are currently buying. Because when we started, if you were having a small gathering at home or a large party or whatever, you literally could not buy anything sustainable. You would have to buy plastic. Even if you live the rest of your life, in a sustainable way. So, you know, at the time, friends and I, we were buying organic produce. We were using sustainable cleaning products. You know, we lived a more sustainable life, but we'd have a party and it would be full of plastic products. So this was a way that we could get into people's homes and build the brand and be an alternative that didn't exist. And, you know, it didn't exist at the time for a number of reasons, not because nobody had necessarily thought about it, just because there was not a big enough market. Like that is actually a bit of a takeaway there. You can have the most innovative product, but if there's not enough kind of education and awareness about what that is, it's you're going to spend a lot of time and money educating people about why they need the product and what it is. So it's a little bit easier to kind of, join a bandwagon and get in on a trend when it's already kind of there. And is that what you had to do? You had to educate the market and get people. Yeah. Like why should I even have this product today? We don't really have to do that. The awareness is there. <laughs> so now we just, okay, <laughs> because we got built it. <laughs> yeah. But we didn't build, I mean, the lucky piece was that, you know, the media and what had, what had been going on with all the plastic in the ocean had built up this like, you know, huge awareness around the problems of plastic. And so we didn't have to do that heavy lifting, but Mm -hmm. kind of creating a new product that's a new product category or you're innovating on that's something entirely new. It is the timing piece is really hard because you do want to be the first. There's a big advantage to being the first mover, but also you're that, then you're stuck with a lot of that education and awareness building, which is obviously just costly. And so it's hard. I mean, oftentimes they say like the second entrant kind of has the biggest advantage because the first mover does a lot of the work and then the second one is still really early. Um, riding that wave. <laughs> yeah, they're riding that wave. And so, you know, we always talk about it like we've seen so many trends, and especially in food and beverage over the years. And early days was like coconut water and then cold brew and kombucha. And, you know, I'm just thinking beverage. It's an easy one. But or like gluten-free snacks, whatever it is. You see so many entrants come in, but at the same time, which is hard because when you have a lot of competitors, that's another challenge. But the the advantage there is you're riding a trend where consumers want this stuff, right? So, you know, mm. there's there's that right. that's built in. Totally. But anyway, yeah. In the early days, there was definitely a lot of resistance from 
for us getting into to mass retail because they they and they were right that you know, there just wasn't enough awareness and there wasn't enough of a market for people that would actually buy this debt. So they thought it would just sit on the shelf. Right. Or they thought, oh, this green thing's just a fad. Like, we don't really, we're not it. No. And the major players in our category are huge multinational companies with huge budgets that basically can kind of buy their way to stay in the position that they have on the shelf. So it's difficult. It's very difficult to penetrate. Um, and that was, that was a massive effort. I mean, the first five years we, we spent just knocking on doors and being persistent. And when they said no, we would constantly come back and just push, 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 push. Oh my gosh. Gosh. I've got so many questions for you. There's so many things I want to ask. First question in the very beginning, in those early days, how much capital did you kind of need to actually get started? It obviously sounds like, you know, there was probably a lot that was required. And B, did you kind of see yourself building a brand to what it is today? Like, did you see this future or what was the vision? The vision was this future. We really felt like we want to be this, you know, ubiquitous brand that is in everybody's homes. And and we still have a ways to go there for sure. But we felt like we could be the next generation's, you know, tide <laughs> or, you know, the next generation of products that people know and trust and where it serves that kind of sustainable lifestyle, which people want finally. But in terms of the capital raise in the early days, this is something that I think is a, is a huge takeaway. And what I always tell people, we were in a really lucky position in that I had built up enough of kind of a, a career prior that I was able to do consulting work while we were starting this company. So I didn't have to take any, any salary for the first several years. And that's kind of crucial because all the funding should go into the company, not necessarily to pay yourself. We, we were always scraping by. I mean, it was just so hard in those early days because we had this big vision, but again, no proof. And people really had to believe in just the vision and kind of what we were building. And at the time, like I said, there wasn't really that awareness that there is today. So getting big investors was hard. So we got, luckily we had friends and family that were supportive. We, we did angel invest, you know, we had, we did a round of angel investments, but it took, it wasn't like one or two. It was many, many, many writing small checks because they felt like, well, you know, the odds are you're probably going to fail. So I'll put in a little bit, like I'll give you 10,000 or maybe 25,000, but we weren't getting big checks in the early days. I bet they wish they put in more now. (laughs) You're like, we stuck it out. (laughs) We really stuck it out. We pushed through, we persisted. (laughs) Yeah. And, and also, you know, we had put in as, as founders, we, we invested ourselves. So it, you know, those early days are so tough because it is, so hard. I mean, I think it's it's better now. I do think it's better now than it was 10 years ago. There's many, many more funds that come in at the very early stage, like seed or even pre-seed. Um, there's many more funds investing in, in women, female-founded companies, in sustainability. But back then, there wasn't at all to the same degree. I mean, there were a few, but it was few and far between. So mm-hmm. it, was, mm-hmm. it was tough. It was definitely... Those early days, I mean, raising money is always hard, but that was really hard. Yeah, every, a lot of people say that on the show, that fundraising was like one of the most difficult kind of roles to take on, especially in those early days. And 
you know, adjusting yourself to the rejection that you get and the relentless <laughs> pursuit that you have to have to get it. It's, you know, I always just, my motto is always like, okay, one door closes, another door opens. One door closes, another door opens. Because, right. I mean, in some cases, yeah, maybe they just don't believe in you. On, on the other hand, though, a lot of times it's, well, your metrics don't match what they need to, you know, their fun metrics, et cetera, or whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. there's so many different things. And especially when you've got kind of like this, you know, a product that is not, it is a little bit outside the norm and is, you know, you're trying to prove this, this mission when maybe the market's not there yet. I think there's a lot of skepticism there. We had a lot of skepticism in the early days. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So it's not often that I actually have someone on the show that's been in business for such a long time. You know, we're talking like 11 years, nearly 12 years here that you've had the business going. And I really want to understand like what it takes to get from there where things were really hard and really pushing to circa now, which is like stocked in 15,000 stores, you know, all over the place, 10x growth since 2015, something crazy. Like how? <laughs> like it's hard for me to comprehend that kind of scale and the journey of what's from A to B to C to D. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So I'm trying yeah. to understand what those pivotal moments have been in the growth and why you think it's been able to get to this point and and how? I think it's really been, well, for one, it's definitely like one foot in front of the other. What we have done, which I don't, I wouldn't say, please follow this path because (laughs) (laughs) I think there are easier ways, but I mean, also, okay. So back then, as, as many understand when you, when you're raising money, you, you generally raise with a, Either you have a, a price round worth a set valuation or you're doing a convertible note or a safe where you often do have a cap or some discount or whatever. And so that determines how much equity you as a founder get to keep and how much you have to give away. And back then, the valuations were a lot smaller, especially for consumer companies, especially for female founder companies, especially for sustainability companies. So we started out with this very, very tiny valuation as such had to give away quite a bit of the company, even just to get, you know, nominal dollars. And so that kind of plagued us from day one because we never could do this gigantic raise, which we needed, but couldn't do because we'd be giving away so much of the company because our valuation was really low. So my takeaway there is if you can raise on a convertible note or a safe where you don't have to price it and can just say, I'll give you a discount to the next round, 100% do that because then you don't box yourself in. But at the time that was kind of the only way we could get the funding. So we did it. And because of that, we had to kind of continually raise in these small increments and we had the need for inventory. So those that are in consumer businesses, that's a huge, huge thing. Your inventory costs are going to be a big piece of basically your investment and where, where money's going in the early days. For us, at least. I mean, it's always just a source of a constant source of like, you know, you have to buy the inventory. We we produce our inventory in Asia and, you know, we sell in the United States. And so for us, there's a very long lead time between when we have to pay our partners, the factories to produce the product. And then it has to ship here and then we have to get it to the stores and then it has to sell and then we get paid. So you're always as you grow, you're you're running out of money constantly. So it's like this double-edged sword. Like the more you grow, the more money you need. And the bigger that kind of valley is in terms of covering your costs. So for those that are starting anew, if you can create some sort of terms with whoever's producing your inventory, like where like you pay them when you get paid, or, you know, you have some kind of like net 30 or net 60 or something where you're not putting a cash advance to get the product, that will save you in terms of how much you have to raise in the future, et cetera, and just leave the cash in your business. Because the more the cash is going out for those big purchases, 
the more you don't have to, to spend on marketing, to pay your people, to grow the business. And is that what you were doing? In some ways, yeah, we would do like inventory funds where we'd raise from investors to buy inventory because again, back then we weren't profitable, so we weren't bankable, so we couldn't just get a bank loan to do it. Now there are tons of different, there's like all these online resources where you can do like working capital funding. They take a huge interest rate. It's like a bigger credit card, but sometimes that's even cheaper than equity, but a way to kind of purchase your inventory. So as we grew, we were in this conundrum of like, okay, well now we need we're growing and we need more money and more money and more money. And luckily we did have some incredible supporters from the early days that continued to support us. But we, I was just in a constant kind of like hamster wheel of fundraising because as we grew, we just needed more and more. And also that means your equity is constantly going down. So you're thinking like, if I ever (laughs) want to exit, it's got to be big. Yeah, it's going to have to be so big to be able to make it worthwhile. Exactly. Especially over such a long time. Exactly. So what happened? How did you get around that? Well, we have, we've been doing things like issuing options and giving ourselves stock options. But, you know, we've had to, that's been the issue. We've had to raise really carefully and choose when we do, even though we need more money. And so we've, it's been this constant balancing act of, you know, I would love to go out and raise, you know, 10 million, 20 million right now, we can really use it. And, and that's something that we are considering, but again, it comes at, you know, will that, will that investment? I think the question to always ask yourself is whatever investment you're taking in, whatever equity you're giving away, will that result in the kind of growth that you're looking for to, to increase the value of the company by a multiple? Right. It's like to a hundred million with that valuation kind of thing. Yeah. Like you have to be, it's hard because when, as a founder, when someone wants to give you millions of dollars, that's very, you know, that's gratifying. You're like, oh yeah, that's amazing. It's a new shiny thing, but it's not always the best thing for your business. Like if I could do it again and take way less money and exit early and still have that same take home, like that's, and there's, that's, that's the equation that you're always sort of doing. But at the same time, you're just like, I just want to grow my business. I just want to build this brand. I'm, working so hard on my day to day just to get this going. Like at the same time, you have to be thinking through these other things. And so I think to me, that's one of the biggest challenges that like you have to work in the business to grow the business, but at the same time, think about, well, how, how am I going to fund this in the right way and the ownership, et cetera, et cetera. And so the great thing I think also about having partners or co-founders is you can each take on some of those roles almost a full-time capacity so that, you know, for me, I was always out fundraising. It would have been really hard to manage day-to-day and fundraise at the same time to the amount of fundraising I had. Like, it just is impossible. I know some people do it. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I couldn't do that. And so I have co-founders and partners that were managing aspects of the business, like some of the day-to-day or managing all of the sales. Like I would be involved, but not to that day-to-day level. And so freed up the time to fundraise and make sure that we always had, you know, the money that we needed to execute whatever we needed to execute. So it is, it is in terms of like getting from A to B to C to D, every stage has its massive challenges. A lot of, a lot of it is just like, especially when you're pioneering a product, it's just the time, like you need time to get, to get people aware of your product and to get the growth happening and, and, time is money and you need people and people to work 
you know, super hard, but at the same time, you don't necessarily have all the money to, <laughs> to reward them with all that hard work. And so you've got to give equity or something to get them excited about wanting to work for you that hard. Um, I mean, we're super lucky with who we have on our team. Everybody's really passionate about what we're doing, super hard workers and, and just have really put in that extra mile to make, to make us what we are today. So it's, it's like, there's just every stage, I think, like you get to a certain point, for example, you know, maybe from zero to 1 million is a thing. And then after 1 million, it's like, wow, I've fully made it, but no, 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 no. There's so many, so many challenges. And from one to 5 million is kind of like another stage. And after five and then after 10 and after 20 and after like at each stage, there's just different massive challenges that I think it's all about the people you surround yourself with and who, and, and bringing in, like we have tons of advisors that have kind of been there and done that. So they can sort of say, Hey, when you get to this stage, here's the things you need to be thinking about. And mm. this stage, you need to be thinking about because you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. You know, <laughs> we have never done. And so I think, I think there are some founders that have a bit of that cocky attitude where they think well, we can do it. You know, I always took the attitude of like, I have never done this. I don't know at all what I don't know. And I will take all the help I can get because I want this to be successful, you know, and I want this to be, you know, I want this vision to be realized. And this is going to be like, we just knew that this is going to be something that people are going to care about. And this is going to be something that will be in people's lives. So it should be us, you know, we're the ones to do it. Totally. Totally. And so that's actually been, part of my motivation like somebody's going to do this and this category is growing and growing and we sh- we were here first and we should be the ones to do it yeah i love that attitude that's a great attitude to have in the beginning in that kind of like you know working towards seven figures or working towards like you know first few millions in revenue that kind of thing who were the first key hires that helped you get to that stage or was it you just pounding the pavement knocking on doors and being like please stop my product no, I needed people. <laughs> we <laughs> we were a tiny team though for a very long time. So it was myself and I had two partners, one of whom took on more of the operations and logistics and kind of inventory, inventory demand planning, forecasting, that kind of thing. And another one that really handled all sales and marketing. And I was fundraising. And so I would do some of the sales. I had no marketing background, so really none of the marketing. But you know, we would kind of do some sales together in the very early days, but we needed, you know, I think our first hire was more like bookkeeper accountant, who's now our head of finance. She's been with us for 10 years. She's amazing. Wowzer. That's amazing. Yeah. I know. She was our hire. <laughs> and I mean, she really handled all the kind of back of house systems and setup that we, we, I mean, we had nothing. And, and so that was absolutely huge. And then we really had, a, a small number of people wearing multiple hats. Much of our first hires were actually on the sales side because for us, you know, we weren't digitally native. We were selling into brick and mortar. And so you need like feet on the street. You need a lot of people out there. And we did have reps that we worked with, but we needed more sort of like everyday full-time support there. So we sort of built that side first and then kind of the the back of house operations to build it and then slowly have kind of rounded out all of our teams. So now we have 
a marketing team, a sales team, an accounting team, an operations team, and we all work together. But at first it was like, you know, one person doing accounting operations, <laughs> everything. I mean, everyone was doing a bit of everything. And that's kind of, you know, that's what's awesome, I think, about startups. It's just like roll up your sleeves and get it done and do 20 things and just make it happen because no one else is going to. And like hustle, hustle, hustle. You know, you don't have the systems. You don't have the processes. Maybe you're doing things the wrong way, probably too quickly. You know, it's just it's like a tornado. But on the, on the other hand, that's how you get that's that for us was like how we grew because we were like, you know, won't take no for an answer going to make this happen and let's roll up our sleeves and do it. And everybody mm-hmm. had that attitude. So that was crucial. I think it's so much different in a big company where you have teams and support and systems and processes. And like, we had none of that. I mean, we're building to that now because it's at a certain stage. You kind of do, you need that. But yeah, for us, the key hires was, and I think for a lot of people, the founder is often doing kind of like all the operations. And, and so much day to day. And the minute you can kind of get out of that is, is a big step is a huge, huge step because somebody needs to be thinking about the big things and the big partnerships and the big relationships and, you know, the fundraising and the investment and how, how you're going to kind of get from A to B to C on a company, on an investment level, not just, you know, on your go to market. So the minute you can kind of get out of the weeds by hiring either director operations or if you're in the weeds of sales, whoever that key hire is, wherever you're, you know, I think on a digitally native brand, it might be like your head of growth, your head of marketing, whoever can take that on and allow you to kind of like breathe for a minute is a huge key hire. And as soon as you can do that, the problem is you need the money to be able to pay for somebody good or pay for the you talent. <laughs> you got to pay for the talent or give them the equity. Right. Is you need that talent. You need the talent. And you don't also want people will commit and not, you know, you don't want a revolving door. And I think that's something that we've been really lucky with. I mean, we've had most of our key players have been with us for years and years. Mm, yeah, that's crazy. And I imagine that's also because, you know, you've got a really purpose-driven brand. You actually are changing the world. And so people can align themselves with that long-term versus something that's, you know, not doing anything for the planet. For you, obviously you built this as a brick and mortar, like wholesale play in the beginning, but you've obviously transformed and transitioned to being, you know, e-commerce as well and direct to consumer. What's that transition been like and what what's kind of working for you now? That's been a hard transition, to be honest, because it's just not something that was one of our core competencies. And we've kind of had to rethink how we position ourselves online versus in-store. It's really different. The value proposition of what we offer to somebody buying online is very different than why they're buying in-store. And the kind of the customer journey is really different. And so getting around that and understanding like, okay, when somebody's buying in-store, here are the reasons they're buying and here's where they're buying. Whereas why are they buying online? Why would they buy direct from us? When are they buying on Amazon? When are they buying on a walmart.com or target.com or what have you or an affiliate site? It's, you have to kind of map all those customer journeys. And it was just a way different approach to what we had already developed and also a different kind of prioritization of, of products. So for example, 
what people are buying online and what works for an, from an e-commerce perspective is really, you know, something that people are going to buy over and over and over again. You know, it's not just a one-time buy. And so for us, you know, tableware is, you know, it's not that over and over and over again. We do have trash bags, which is what we saw we're really selling big time because people were using them all the time. You know, you need them all the time. And so the thought process was, okay, well, we want to, if we're going to pay to acquire a customer, we want them to have something to buy again and again, but that's also sustainable. So what is that? It was trash bags. Now we're launching toilet paper and paper towel made from bamboo. FSC certified 100% bamboo because if you're going to buy your trash bags, you might as well, oh, you can buy your toilet paper here too. And like that wasn't something we'd ever thought or started with because our mission was the plastic issue. And so how does toilet paper align with that? But at the same time, it is plant-based. It's a replacement for, you know, tree-based toilet paper and something that people replenish and buy all the time. And so online, we're much more about kind of replace it with repurpose is our kind of uh, our value. Replace these everyday items that you do all the time with repurposed products because it's an easy switch. You can subscribe and save. And that is how we position ourselves online. Whereas in store, people are mostly buying plates and bowls and forks and things for part. They're not buying, you know, they are buying trash bags, but people are looking for those products. So it's, it's a little bit different and you really have to, the branding, the positioning, the way you kind of put yourself out there is different. We also launched reusable products several years ago for, for kids. So alternative to all the plastic kind of, you know, kids sets that you see out there. These are non-toxic. These are made from bamboo and corn and cassava and, you know, it's all plant-based. But again, that's a much different proposition than what you're buying in store. We don't sell those in store. So it has been a big transition. And I think anyone going into business now probably will be digitally native first because that just is kind of the easiest entry point. And so you already have that, you know, you already developed that value proposition from an e-commerce perspective, and then that can be translated to store. But I would encourage people, to, it is it is a very different channel. There are very different channels. And so mm. it takes almost like a different, definitely a different go-to-market strategy. It's a whole different marketing strategy. But I think what I'm seeing, I think, I mean, we have an advantage in that we do have all this distribution in wholesale. Mm-hmm. Great. And I know a lot of times companies want want that. They're, they're, they're doing well in e-com, but they want that actual footprint, which is often a little bit harder. The negative about having the the brick and mortar or sort of the, the wholesale distribution is you're at the mercy of these other, you know, you're at the mercy of their schedules, the, the big, big accounts like the Walmarts and the Targets, they've got very set schedules. So if they decide they don't want to take you one year, you're waiting like 18 months before you even can get in there again. And you can't really run a business that way. So it's it's hard. You have to kind of fill in with other accounts. Whereas online, you're kind of, you're the master of your own domain and with Amazon, et cetera, I think they're, I think it's, it's a great way, great way to start. Obviously there, I think there's a lot of equally big capital requirements and I know it's getting tougher and tougher in terms of customer acquisition and those costs going up, et cetera, but you get to know your customer, you get to know what's working and not working right away. All the analytics are right there. It's 
I mean, I'm just learning, but I think primed fiscate. <laughs> yeah, I, I love it. This is probably a really stupid question, but like, where to from here? Because you're obviously, you know, in all the key accounts, you're you've grown the brand, you know, so much. You're obviously doing the D 2 C thing. You're introducing new products. What's the kind of north star that you're working towards now? What's the next step? And also. Where to for you, you know, being in the business for 11 years, at what point do you think like, what's your roadmap? Like how long do you think you'll be able to stay in the business for without being, you know, tired and burnt out and ready to, (laughs) maybe you already are. (laughs) Well, I think we still have a long way to go in terms of, I mean, we are in all these stores, but we're not in their full footprint. And so we, we have a long way to go to do sort of get that full footprint. I think e-commerce for us is just starting. We're just in the, in the infancy. So that's even a business in itself to build. Product development is such a huge area for us. And there's so many new and innovative cool products. There's so many new cool technologies and that we can partner with to create all these amazing products. And I think there's just still so much to be done. There obviously is a day at which I say, okay, you know, I've been in this for a very long time. Maybe it's time to pass the torch. But I think that there's still so much brand building to be done. Very interesting partnerships. I think there's a lot of work yet to be done. And I think we've come very far for sure, but there's still, there's still so much to do. So I do feel like, you know, it's, (laughs) there's still a long way to go and I'm excited. You've got more fuel in the tank. (laughs) And we'll see, we'll see how far that takes us, but I'm excited. I think this next phase kind of integrating the brick and mortar with e-commerce and seeing where that goes is very interesting and how we can kind of create the flywheel with all those channels is exciting. Domination, global domination across all the channels, all the places. Yes, actually, that's a good point. What? No way. Yeah. So. Oh my gosh. So actually global domination, that's the next thing. <laughs> the actual next thing. <laughs> that's another mountain to climb. I mean, I'm not in Canada yet. We're not in Canada yet. Our products are not in Canada yet. And so that's one, just being from there, I would love to have our products there um, as, as a step. But yes, I think as as the world moves to a more sustainable future, I think we, we have a, a place around the world <laughs> as a brand. Totally. Yeah. I can't wait for all the restaurants that do takeaway that are built on the, like the basis of takeaway to make the switch because especially if you're going a few nights a week to get, you know, sushi or something like that. That's such a, uh, it's the worst. I'm conscious of the time. So I've got one more question before we get into the six quick questions that I ask end of every episode. What is your key piece of advice for entrepreneurs who are earlier on in the journey, but they have that big vision and that big idea? I really think take it one step at a time because, you know, you're not going to get there overnight. and there's many little wins along the way. Raise way more money than you think you need. Always, it's going to take double the amount of time and double the amount of money, as they say, or more. Um, but that's that's true. That's absolutely true. And I think don't give up. I mean, there's so many times where, like, you know, the rejection hits you or whatever it is that, you know, it would be easier probably just to quit. And I don't know, I read a quote somewhere the other day that was like, Every successful person, the thing they have in common is that they never give up. That's so true. Love that. 
yeah, I think that's what separates kind of the successful ones from the not so successful. Nice. I always operate by the stop stopping. If you just stop stopping, yeah. then you just keep it on. Keep on keeping on. <laughs> keep on keeping on. Oh, okay. Let's get into the six quick questions. I ask them at the end of every episode to everyone I speak to. Some of them we might have covered already, but I ask them all the same. Question number one, what's your why? Why are you doing what you're doing? My why is to be part of the solution. I want to be on on that side and really contribute to to something and have a purpose. And I think it feels that way every day with repurpose. I love that. It's like being on the right side of like shaping, you know, the future. That's, that's my why. Yeah. Really cool. Question number two is what do you think has been the number one marketing moment that made the business pop? The number one marketing moment, I think, was in the U.S. in 2018, there was a ban on plastic straws. And there was an article in National Geographic, that, or maybe it was a, just a picture on the Internet that went viral with um, a straw and a sea turtle. Oh, the nose. turtle. Oh, my God. I yeah. hate that photo. I know. But that did it. That was, we were getting calls from everyone. Do you make straws? Do you make compostable straws? We're getting rid of our plastic straws. And that's, that was the catalyst. That was really like, you know, doors that we had been banging down for years. Once that they wanted our straw and then we said, well, we don't only have straws. We have all these other products. And we'd had the straw already, I think, in development for just over a year by the time the, the ban happened. So we were ready. We had it. We were ready to go. And that that was a game changer. Wow. You really can't plan for that. That's that's crazy. That's a lot of serendipity that plays into that, I think. Yeah. Nothing that we did, but... Crazy. Yeah. Amazing. Question number three is, where do you hang out to get smarter? What are you reading or listening to or subscribing to that others should know about? I, I'm i a big podcast listener um, and I do audiobooks as well. I, I was actually just telling a friend, I really slowed down my actual reading, which is terrible to admit, but I, I fall asleep. Like the time I have is in the evening and I can only get like four pages in and then I'm just like, so the audiobooks thing has been huge podcast. There's a really great podcast that I've been recently listening to called pivot. It's with Kara Swisher and I'm forgetting and Scott Galloway. And it's really, really, they're just so smart and it's interesting. It kind of covers business technology just what's happening politically and they kind of combine it all. I just, I like their perspective. So that's been a really good one, but yeah, to me, it's all about the podcasts. Great. I'm going to link it in the show notes. I also just got a membership to not just, but I've been using it. My sister and brother-in-law gave it to me to masterclass. Oh, how good is masterclass? I love it. It's good. Yeah. It's great. So interesting. So many interesting people on there. Really cool. Mm-hmm. Question number four is how do you win the day? And that's around your AM or your PM rituals and habits that keep you feeling happy and successful and motivated. So this is also new for me. Um, so I've got young kids and they, they help me win the day because they're just, I love being around them and having time with them just is, is what gives me what kind of enriches me. But I think this is new for me. I've started doing, you know, workouts, some kind of exercise and stretching and whatever every day, five days of the week. Just felt like, oh, I don't have time to do this before. And it does get to you. I mean, I think in COVID was when 
I was always somewhat active and then COVID, I just was like not and couldn't go to the gym, et cetera. So I just didn't. And I really started feeling it in every aspect of my life. And just once things kind of lifted here and I could start doing that again, I just felt like I'm going to do, I've got to make this a priority and do this every day. So I totally understand when people say I don't have the time because I actually didn't used to have the time when we were working in an office in LA, my commute was like 30 to 45 minutes. And so I, you know, got the kids ready, would go to work, drive to work, be there all day, drive home, kids, dinner, da, 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 da. Like, where do you work out? I mean, I couldn't, my husband actually leaves the house really, really early in the morning. So I, it's not like I could like be like, bye honey, I'm going for a workout. Like he's gone at five. So there's, <laughs> I'm getting up in the middle of the night, but now we're remote. We work remotely, so I have the ability to kind of do those, and it's been a game changer. And I love it. Love that for you. Love that for you. Really great. (laughs) Yeah, and working remote, like, okay, that's another one. Working remotely, I really, really have enjoyed it. I think we've always been a company about flexibility and giving people that flexibility, but I think you know it's been great for us. We're super productive. We work really well. I mean, there's obviously things that are a challenge remotely, but for the most part, it's been just amazing. Yeah, working remote's great. <laughs> I love great. it. Great. Question number five is if you were given a thousand dollars of no strings attached grant money, where would you spend it? Probably at the gambling table. I mean, I would want to put it into something, make it into more somehow. Because I don't know how far it would go with, with our business. I mean yeah, I would want to. I want to see what I could do to to make that grow, or invest it into something very, you know, high risk, high reward, lucrative. Yeah, <laughs> love that. Question number six is: How do you deal with failure? What's your mindset and approach when things do not go to plan? Well, that happens a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just feel like this is just part of it. This is this is going to happen, and you know. My fallback is always, I know that I'm doing the best that I can and I'm working really hard. And as long as I have that, I feel like I've put in my best effort. So, you know, I've done the best I can. I've really, really pushed as hard as I can to do whatever I can. And sometimes it's not enough and sometimes it's way more than enough. But if I know that, then I'm okay with it. I'm okay with the outcome because I know I did everything I could. This was so awesome. I've loved chatting with you. I think you are on this crazy mission that, you know, you've had to have been really dedicated to and had such conviction to to go through it for such a long time already and to be only still at this place where you feel like you're just getting started on things like D2C and the e-commerce side of things. So I'm in awe of what you're doing. Thank you so much for sharing your story on the show today. Thank you so much. I appreciate all those kind words and and thank you so much for doing what you're doing and highlighting all these incredible women. So thank you, Dune. Hey, it's Dune here. Thanks for listening to this amazing episode of the Female Startup Club podcast. If you're a fan of the show and want even more of the good stuff, I'd recommend checking out femalestartupclub.com where you can subscribe to our free newsletter. We send it out weekly covering female founder business news, insights and learnings in D2C, and interesting business resources. And if you're a founder building an e-commerce brand, you can join our private network of entrepreneurs, 
called Hype Club at femalestartupclub.com forward slash Hype Club. We have guests from the show joining us for intimate Ask Me Anythings, expert workshops, and a group of totally amazing, like-minded women building the future of D2C brands. As always, please do subscribe, rate and review the show, and post your favorite episodes to Instagram stories. I am beyond grateful when you do that. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. June here. Thanks for listening to this amazing episode of the Female Startup Club podcast. If you're a fan of the show and want even more of the good stuff, I'd recommend checking out femalestartupclub.com where you can subscribe to our free newsletter. We send it out weekly covering female founder business news, insights and learnings in D2C, and interesting business resources. And if you're a founder building an e-commerce brand, you can join our private network of entrepreneurs called Hype Club at femalestartupclub.com forward slash Hype Club. We have guests from the show joining us for intimate Ask Me Anythings, expert workshops, and a group of totally amazing, like-minded women building the future of D2C brands. As always, please do subscribe, rate and review the show, and post your favorite episodes to Instagram stories. I am beyond grateful when you do that. (laughs) 